trails of troubles, rows of battles, fans of victory, we shall walk. Good afternoon and welcome to WEHC 90.7 and you're tuning in to She Walks with Sharon Bowers and Carly Blaylock. I hope that you were with us on last week and we've been talking about intersectional feminists and We've been talking about ways to bring that into the workplace. And particularly, we, we we started talking about this phenomenal statement. Uh, Carly, can you read just that piece of it, that one about the, the gender, mm-hmm. one about patriarchy and, and about white supremacy? Yeah. So um, again, we are reading from the same article we've been working um, with for the past couple of weeks by um, disorient.com, Leadership for Social Justice, Practicing Intersectional Feminism. So down in this article, it talks about the pillars of intersectional feminist leadership. We're currently talking about intersectional feminist leadership is critically reflexive. And within this paragraph, it says, it recognizes that patriarchy has no gender and white supremacy has no race. Yeah, that's where I got stuck last week. So I apologize (laughs) Uh, and and then we were also talking about how to decolonize the mind or how to start yes. decolonizing the mind. We we say it as I guess I say it again for both Carly and myself. We're talking from our own experience, and that's just what it is. It's our own lived experience, our own epistemology. So it may not be accurate, and it may not necessarily reflect yours. But I think one of the things that it helps us do is to look reflectively at where we are and what's going on. And and one of the questions I asked the last time was how do we we both were talking about how do we start the process of decolonizing our mind? And uh, I think for me, I, I thought about it. For me, it starts with the realization that a lot of who I am, what I've learned, what I've been taught, what I know, all has been based on colonization. Yeah. I mean, I have to just just kind of start there and say, wait a minute, this is really not my truth. This is someone else's truth that was given to me that I was expected to own so that I can perform and live in a society that wants to remain the way it always has been. Absolutely. And I think (laughs) that's the first step, right, is to understand everything that we have been taught, everything that we have learned that has been sort of ingrained in our culture has come from colonization. And so, you know, just starting to ask questions and starting to investigate things and look for answers that are not based in that colonized worldview could be the first step and just sort of opening that box and kind of seeing what's in there. Yeah, I guess that's unlearning before we can learn. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, And I think that's what's real frightening for a lot of people. And we won't go down that tangent, but the whole critical race theory and yeah. what you can teach and the banning of books and all of that, there is a fear that we might actually... Uh, learn something that's accurate other than what we have been told and and all the suppressions I mean you know just, I think back to like Black History Month and you see all these inventions that Black people did quote unquote and never got any credit and when when you start to do that it even though you try to rewrite the history and the history quote unquote it's so ingrained in us that we always see well they were just helpers you know with with the 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 light with with Benjamin Franklin it was just some helpers with the traffic light it was just a helper you know with whatever it is that you're doing it was just you know take away you know make that person non persona so that you can still tell the story and and i think it's just real frightening 
I read an article recently. Uh, I don't remember the woman's name, but it was a woman at, I think it was at Taylor University, but she had Jamar Tisby's book in her syllabus and they actually fired her and gave her one of the reasons was that she was talking too much about anti-racism and those kinds of things. And they, the person who fired her was actually crazy enough to cite that she talked about Tisby. You know, he does The Color of Compromise and that's the book. And so he talks about, you know, it's a great book if you haven't read it, but he talks primarily about our economic system, our system of land, our system of ownership of housing, where right side of town, wrong side of towns, all those things. He talks about that. And she actually got fired and they cited that was one of the reasons that she was too liberal, she was too progressive, and she was too anti-racism, mm. anti-racist, you know? Yeah. I said all that to say, even when you're in a place where you try to help other people unlearn so that they can learn, that's what I said earlier, you could get in a world of trouble for trying to set the record straight the way it really is. Yeah. And you're also fighting against you're fighting against systems, um, but you're also fighting against the overarching accepted truth, quote unquote, right? Mm -hmm. So, so much. I mean, I have heard many conversations where, you know, someone will try to correct someone and bring up, oh, actually uh, a black person invented this whatever, right? No, that's not true. That's just not mm -hmm. true. It, it, right. It couldn't be. Couldn't true, be. Right. Um, and so, because, you know, well, but I was taught in school, but I was taught that this is the way that things happened. And it's like, okay, but there may be more to the story or it may just not be true. And yeah. maybe it's time to kind of like look into that and, and see if that's actually true. And that's a really difficult place for people to have those conversations. Yeah. It's and trying to, to you know, when we talk about decolonization and decolonizing our minds, you know, and we're looking at, just like you said, how do we change the narrative? Because mm -hmm. that is a personal affront to many white people's existence and the maintenance of their supremacy. Yeah. So you trying to change the narrative to say it really, and I think that's what a lot of fights are about. You know, the whole issue about uh, the Civil War monuments, you know, and all of those kinds of things. It's just because you're trying to say it really didn't happen exactly that way, or mm -hmm. these people really were not they're not really who you say they are. They're just people that you put a monument up later to, to remind, but, but that's not, they're really not these people that have, you know, maintained our country. And then, you know, when you, when you have people like, you know, Thomas Jefferson, the founder, you know, the whole declaration of independence, you know, all of those kinds of things, one of our founding fathers and all that, when you bring to the forefront that he had a, 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 a place in his basement where he fathered, many children with Sally Hemings, people yeah. just don't want to hear that. That just no. cannot be. Right. And and the sickest part about that for me is they reframe it as though she was his lover. Yes, yes. Like yes. they refer to her as his mistress or his lover. Right. He owned her. What do you yeah. mean? Like she yeah. was not in a position to refuse. So that is not like, it's just that drives me crazy when I hear that. And, and for him to go to the to a place to find a secret place for her to dwell so yeah. that hundreds of years, it was hundreds of years before they actually found that little place where she was to be at his beck and call mm -hmm. anyway, anytime. And yet when we talk about it, we would almost, if you talked about Thomas Jefferson in that, the way you and I are talking about, it's almost like some people would say, how dare us? Mm -hmm. 
So changing the narrative, you know, unlearning and learning is really hard for the powerful. Yeah. And I think, I think a great place to start having those conversations is to challenge the idea of the quote unquote great man, because so much of history, learning about history or what's been written about history is about these quote unquote great men. Right. Mm -hmm. And yes, they were flawed and yes, they did bad things, but they were great men who Mm -hmm. accomplished great things too. So you can't look at it like that because it was, it was a different time. You hear that a lot, or, you know, the world was a crueler place or, you know, whatever the case may be, there's lots of excuses that get made for their behavior because they were quote unquote great men. And I think challenging that idea is a really great place to start with that whole decolonization, because it's like, what are we talking about when we talk about a quote unquote great man? right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're often talking about conquerors and colonizers and, you know, the, that sort of thing. And also that behavior does get excused or minimized because, you know, well, it was a different time or a more brutal time or whatever. And you'll hear people say that a lot, of course, about um, slavery in the United States. And if you read contemporary authors who were writing at the time, they knew slavery was wrong. It it's not a, you know, they may have tried to justify it in their own way, but they knew it was wrong. And it's very clear reading contemporary, you know, writings at the time that there were many, many people that knew that this was not okay. And, you know, may have participated in it anyway, but knew that it was wrong. Yeah, I, I think, and I think that's why you have to have movements like, you know, suffragist movement or movements like the abolition movement, you know, you had to have people who would come together. And that's one of the things I think for decolonization also that I would recommend is that we find a way to sit with our stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, like to sit with like you and I are talking about this and you and I, you and I talk about these kinds of things often, even if we're not on the air and we, we've given each other permission to kind of sit with it without being angry or without being accusatory or any of those things. And, and that's one of the biggest fears is that nobody wants to sit in this space and talk about it. And there are as many people, like, say, for instance, like I, my sister, I talk about her often because we're close, but like she will not watch a movie that depicts people as enslaved. She's mm. just like, I'm not doing it. Yeah. You can't make me do it. And I don't know how much of that is really the avoidance of that trauma, or is it just, I just don't, can never see myself like that, or don't ever want to see that anybody who looked like me was like that. I'm not sure which one, but I even tried to get her to watch the 1619 Project with me. It's just like, I don't really want to watch that kind of stuff, you know? And so I'm saying that it's not just the oppressor, but it's also those who, who have been oppressed, who don't feel comfortable sitting in that space or sitting with this kind of stuff that it takes to decolonize. I mean, you have to talk about it. It's in your mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's kind of one of those, uh, one of those challenges that, that we all face in this multicultural world is trying to find a place for us to sit with the uncomfortable, whatever that is, the sensations, the, the drama, the trauma, the whatever mm-hmm. it brings up just being able to sit with, because it is really, it's extremely painful. Yes, absolutely. And it is difficult to have the narrative challenged and your own narrative challenged. And um, it's difficult to face that generational ancestral trauma that, you know, anybody who finds themselves to be, you know, experience any kind of oppression will, will have. 
And I think it's just, it's a really interesting thing to see who is sort of able to sit with that pain and that uncomfortability and others who are maybe not able to do that. But I think everybody has to kind of come to it in their own own way and they're at their own pace too, because it's not. No, it isn't. And I think that's why the powerful, I don't know if you watched it, but there was one of those young men that, uh, what did, what was that process they called when they took them off of the, uh, the, you know, those two black men, there were three of them, they were calling them the Tennessee three. Yes. Um, What was that process when they voted them out? I forget what they called it. Uh, I don't know exactly what they called it. I just heard like they were voted out. That's what I Well, whatever it is, it's a process. I can't think what that process is, but there was the, one of the young men was, was talking to one of the, uh, a congressperson. I think he was a congressperson, anyway, a legislator. And he was talking to him about, he was one that was sponsoring the bill so that critical race or uh, diversity or anything like that could not be taught. And, and just to watch that, I, I, maybe we'll get a chance to listen to it on our show, but to watch it, Carly was amazing because the, 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 it was a white guy, a white legislator. He finally said, whatever you're asking me about, I'm not going to know anything about it. So there's no need for you to ask me. I'm not going to know anything, but he had sponsored a bill that said that we should not teach that. But he right. also said, whatever you're going to ask me, I, I, I'm just not going to know anything about it. So you can stop asking me. And I thought, here you are sponsoring a bill that says that people don't need to learn and you don't know anything about what he was going to ask. He was asking him about, you know, the fact that uh, Black children are suspended at higher rates in schools in Tennessee than white students. Yeah. He was asking, he, he knew none of that, but yet somehow he thought that sponsoring that bill was the right thing for him to do. No, you're exactly right. You know, how many of these legislators have read the books that they're banning? Like how yeah. many of them, you know, it, it goes back to those questions. And again, we saw this with um, the, the fight for reproductive rights as well. You know, how many of these men in Congress have no idea what an atopic pregnancy is or have no idea, you know, about what the procedure of an abortion actually is or actually does. It's a whole, I mean, it's just, you know, that ignorance, right? But yet yeah. you are making a law that is prohibiting something that you don't even truly understand, which is just, I mean, that is a level of privilege that I don't think no, most people experience. Uh, I mean, and, and if if I ever get, I'll try to get that and show it to you and you can see what I'm talking about, because that was the epitome of yeah. him using his privilege and not even having to be accountable for it. You know, right. white male privilege, white male power, you know, all of that. And I don't even have to give an account for it. I can simply say, I don't know anything about any of the thing that you're going to ask me about. However, mm. I think we should not have that in our school system. <laughs> there was also um, a video that surfaced. So the one of the Tennessee three um, was talking on the floor and he gave this great impassioned speech. It was fantastic. And then a bunch of people online found this video of him as a more younger um, politician where he was speaking differently. Um, his voice sounded different. And they were like, you know, see, he's putting on an act. He's putting on an act. And of course, everyone else online was like, so no one knows what code switching is. <laughs> um, which again, it's like, it's one of those things that most people, if you are in a position of privilege and a position of power, you're not going to know what code switching is because you've never had to do it. Not one never. day in your life you've ever had to code switch. And when you have even tried it, you were doing it in a derogatory manner. Sure. You were not doing it as a tool for survival. You right. were doing it to make fun or to act like, you know, you were, it was blackface or brownface, you yeah. know, you were just acting it out. 
you you were even if you even if you weren't literally black face or brown face you were black facing it or brown facing it and, and so you really don't understand it as a survival tool you really don't see it in our in our social justice system how many people have to do it so often you you really don't see it like that right yeah but it well, just goes to show that that level of like I don't even know what that is. <laughs> yeah, and th th that's what he said. He said, and finally he just said, anything you're going to ask me, I'm not going to know the answer. And I thought he could actually, you be savvy enough to say that out loud and no one even cares. And the the one of the Tennessee three, I forget which one it was, but he was uh, he was real nice and kind and and he just kept trying to bring him there. You know, he didn't go for him because really what he could have could have tore him a new one, as they say, he could have went for the jugular because, you know, it was apparent the guy knew nothing about what he was talking about. Absolutely nothing. Yeah. Well, Carly, I think we're supposed to talk about the other one today, too. The, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, and we've kind of been talking about it already because the last pillar is Intersectional feminist leadership seeks to bring about social transformation. It challenges the imperialist white supremacist capitalist cis heteropatriarchy. It rejects, <laughs> it rejects the status quo of the dominant culture and, re and reimagines a world free from oppression and exploitation. Wow. So it, it, I guess somehow we're saying in all of that, those are really big words, Carly, and those a whole really lot for us to, <laughs> us to break down. But I think what we're saying with this whole decolonizing the mind and all of these kinds of things that we've been saying, well, for me, uh, I guess we're saying that we, we've got to do something, you know, and we've got to do something to transform our social systems. And the only way that we can do it is to seek to be free. Right. Um, I mean, and that's such a long process. I mean, even if we look at how, you know, uh, Africans living in America, how they had to fight to be free, how a whole world, how a whole war had to had to happen. So it's not an easy thing. No, yeah, you're exactly right. And this final paragraph, I mean, it is it's very heavy and it says a lot in in a few short sentences, but essentially it's it's challenging the dominant culture mm -hmm. and what we wherever we find oppression and exploitation, challenging that. And there are lots of ways that that presents itself in every aspect of our lived experiences. And so making sure that we're challenging that where we find it. Mm -hmm. There was a, I was just trying to see if I could find it. It was, uh, I was reading an article and it was uh, some professor in Sussex. I think it was Brambra, Grimander Bram, B-H-A-M-B-R-A, Brambra. Anyway, he was a professor of post-colonial and decolonial studies at the University of Sussex, and he advocates a, a something that says how we can correct history, herstory. He said we can correct it, it using an approach that is to deconstruct, to reconnect, and to reconstruct. So mm -hmm. deconstruct, reconnect, and reconstruct. And he says if we do that, then that that will help us not only to look at the role that, you know, the enslavement has uh, played in, in oppression and to not overlook other people's history and history and, uh, you know, to, to reconstruct in spaces and places so that we acknowledge those people who've been marginalized and their culture and their resilience and their complexity and what they had to do to to survive, you know, and to, to, to celebrate that is, is one of the things that he's suggesting. And he, he just says that reworking of an incomplete history 
will help us to destabilize the Western slash European exceptionalism and dominance and gain a better understanding of the world from multiple perspectives. So I thought about that when you read that big long sentence about challenge the imperialistic white supremacist capitalist cis hetero uh, patriarchy. Mm -hmm. it, the hardest part in, in his model would be the reconnect because in reconnecting would be changing the narrative. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's so important because I know we've talked a lot about deconstructing, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the first step and a crucial step, but then what, right? Yeah. What, what happens next and where do yeah. we go from there? And that reconnection and then reconstructing from yeah. there from a connected place is so important. It does require people who have traditionally been in power to find that humility and to find that the ability to take a step back. Yeah, and and I think the the work the work in his model, the work would be done in the reconnect. Yeah. Because that's where we would no longer be revisionist. You know, that's where we would tell it the way it really is. We'll we'll talk about the trail of tear of tears yeah. we'll talk about how horrific that would have been to take an indigenous population and say you must relocate somewhere else and i don't care if you die on the vine or die trying to get there but this is the best i can give you because i want what you have yeah. i mean that's the reality you know when we talk about thanksgiving we can't talk about it like this was this great wonderful time of two great people sitting down having lunch together. I mean, we have to tell it like it is. And that's really horrible. And then I heard someone once talk about the period of enslavement and they said it was a teacher. And she said, well, you know, the slaves really didn't have it that bad. She said they had meals, three squares and a place to sleep. And I thought, how could you reduce a period of enslavement to three squares and a place to sleep? That is absolutely wild to me that that yeah. was said. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a teacher. That was a teacher that said that. Or I told you last time about my nephew's teacher who said that there was no one, no one black in the Revolutionary War. You know, a teacher teaching and never even thinking about Crispus addicts. Yeah. Never even knowing or caring enough to know. Yeah. Um, I mean, I remember and, learning about him in school. Yeah. Like exactly. I, and some people know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah. That's um, I mean, that's true. And I think you know, if we can talk from like a sociology perspective about like the importance of myth and storytelling in mm -hmm, the human experience. Mm -hmm. And so much of what we learn about when it comes to history is a lot of that myth, myth making, myth telling, you know, retelling these stories over and over again. And unfortunately, so many of the stories that are told are told from the colonizer's perspective. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and once they become sort of a part of the mythos, it's really hard to tr to challenge them, you know? So if you were to say like, well, actually that's not exactly how it happened, right? It's like, well, that's, but that's what everybody knows and everybody believes that. And that's the story that's always been told. And it's like, okay, but let's look into it. Is that really how it happened, right? And that's, again, that's really challenging because you're not just challenging historical facts, but you're challenging the myth and the emotions that go along with that that mythos and that legend and i think that's why we have all the attacks now on you know like critical race theory what they think is critical race theory which it really isn't but i think that's why in that reconnect phase if we're using this brambra's uh, model in that reconnect i think that's why we're having all this problem with trying to tell 
tell it like it is, mm -hmm. tell it like it was, tell it like it really happened. That's the fear because, you know, you have people saying, I don't want my children to feel bad. Recently, I read an article where this woman was, she was, a, I think she was a school teacher or she was on the school board. I don't know which one, but anyway, and the video that they showed, she was just talking in circles because she really didn't get it. But she, she finally, at the end, when she couldn't answer the questions about diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and those kinds of things, she finally said, I just don't want my children to be in a classroom where they feel bad about something that somebody did years ago. Yeah. And that was a reason for not wanting the yeah. real history, you know, especially about the period of enslavement to be taught. Right. You don't want your children to feel bad. I've I'm heard really, that same argument. Yeah. Have you really? I, mm -hmm. I had not heard it till that first time. And I was like blown away. I mean, yeah. how do you, how do you stop a whole process of people learning because you don't want your children to feel bad. Yeah. I don't, that people seem to think that's something to do. <laughs> I, don't know. I, I just don't know how we can, Carly, how we can keep up with that. And I, and I think all of this from a social justice perspective, from a social justice movement for us trying to figure out why we need to do this. Here are multiple reasons why we need to do these kinds of things, you know, because we're never going to get there. If we stay here, we're never going to get wherever there is, we're not going to get there if we stay here. Right. Well, and I sometimes feel like people on opposite sides of an issue, whether that issue is, you know, critical race theory, which as you said, they're not really even arguing about that, but that's what they think they're arguing about. Right. So much of it is wrapped up in emotions, the feeling behind things. And it's really difficult to have conversations that are wrapped up in that um, because you first have to ask everyone to sort of take a step back from your the emotional place here because we're trying to have a conversation and that's I mean that's almost an impossible thing to do yeah yeah and I, and I think for us for me and I'll speak for both of us from an intersectional feminist lens perspective I think my goal I think our goal we've talked about this before is to try to get to see intersectionality as a tool for social justice yeah that that's the whole thing for me you know, if you could see how this affects other people uh, and how it is not a white patriarchy, majority, capitalist, all those other words that we heard earlier, hetero patriarchy, all those things. It's not that. I mean, it, it's important for us to kind of look. And, and I think the question that I can't answer, and I don't know if we'll ever be able to answer is, but I asked it often. I asked myself this often. How did we get here? Mm -hmm. and, and if we knew how we got here, then maybe we could go back and start that whole deconstructing process. And I guess where we figure out how we got here is in that reconnecting, reconnecting literally with history and history and socialization and what we've done. And that requires, I mean, I don't even know if that's within my scope. I don't know about you, but that's a real forever learning process, which is why I guess what we talked about last week in the process of always doing the personal assessment because you'd have to go all the way back. I mean, even sometimes when we, we talk about, I wear a shirt that says, you know, my history did not begin with slavery. Yeah. You know, somebody has to understand about Africa. Right. Yeah. Ancient civilization. You know, you, you can't just say it starts in America because you don't, you miss it if you do that. And so that means all of us have to go back and you primarily have to go back on your own because our education system is, is trying to, uphold the patriarchal, you know, hegemonic white supremacy legacy. It doesn't want these other things in it. Yeah. 
you're exactly right. And I think it's really important that people realize that. And that also in the grand scheme of history, you know, America is very young. Um, yes. The United States of America is very young. There's so much that we just don't know or talk about or explore. I mean, in, in our education system, you know, we get pretty much well-versed in American history, which, you know, is, you need to know it, but we learn very little about anything else <laughs> when it comes to history. Yeah. It, we and the world got, history we learn is very European centric. And I was getting ready to say, and we only yeah. got that if they thought you were going to go to college. Yeah. You only got world history if they thought you were headed to college. If you weren't headed to college, you didn't even need to know about world history. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we're almost out of time. We are. As usual. Well, Carly, close us out and give us hope for next week. (laughs) (laughs) So we we are at the end of our time. Um, So we thank you all so much for being with us. You know, next week we would love to continue this discussion and maybe kind of finish out reviewing this article that has just been so rich with um, topics to talk about. But we also would love to hear from you all. If you have topics you would like us to cover, please let us know. Um, And we will see you all again next week. All right. Bye, everybody. Pass on the victory. We shall walk.